Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. What would it mean to build artificial intelligence and other machines that were more like octopuses, more like fungi, or more like forests? Asked James Bridle in their new book, Ways of Being. Bridle's book explores these other forms of intelligence to map out what an ecology of technology could look like and how we can work together with the more than human world to better understand, navigate, live with, and preserve the complexities of our planet. Bridal joins us after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. I first encountered James Bridal as the proprietor of the brilliant Mid-Ots blog, Book Two. It was there that Bridal explored way out past the boundaries of what books were or could be, based on the bracing influx of ideas from the digital world. Then they created one of the world's most influential tumblers, a collection of images held together by Bridal's curatorial genius. It was called The New Aesthetic, and it was evidence that technology was generating new ways of seeing. But that wasn't always good. For example, the drone-eyed view of the world had never existed before and it could be used to deliver all the power of American empire. Over the last few years, Bridal fully completed their transformation into a full-on international artist. They now live on a small Greek island, where they're joining us from, surrounded by Mediterranean and mythos. And their new book, Ways of Being, Animals, Plants, Machines, The Search for a Planetary Intelligence, feels like the culmination of so many of Bridal's wild ideas and optimism about what could be done with technology. And for us as readers, this could be a new foundation, a new way of seeing the world we now live in. This book contains so many fascinating components and stories, facts and research, but it isn't a grab bag of interesting stuff. It's a pretty cohesive attempt to say, how can we fully be in a world of digital works and fungal networks, slime molds and cloud computing, rapacious capitalism and the spiraling delicate growth of a seed? If you can't tell, the producer of this segment, Caroline Smith, and I are very, very excited about this work, and we're so pleased to welcome James Bridal to the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. James, uh, I want to start with your experiments building a self-driving car, driving it around the roads of Greece. There's tons of information about how self-driving cars work and code and courses you can take, talks by engineers from different companies. Why did you have to build your own? Well, I've been kind of playing around with various bits of kind of quite simple AI code for for quite a long time. And I'd worked with engineers who are much more skilled at doing this and much more experienced. 
But what I've always discovered and kind of realized through various art and, and, and research projects is that you never really understand a thing unless you're capable of building it yourself. You have to have some kind of real understanding, not just of how a thing works, but like how it feels in order to be able to work with it. And so with this self-driving car project a few years ago, I really wanted to, to build that experience myself, to know what it would be like, not to ask someone else to make me this thing, but to work with it. And crucially, to treat this, whatever it is, this piece of software, this machine learning program, this kind of nascent artificial intelligence, not as, as a tool, just as a machine, but a kind of colleague or a, um, someone I was cooperating with that we'd create something together. And that gave it to me, you know, a completely different cast, a completely different experience. Yeah, it almost seemed like as you described what you were doing with the car, you were almost co-creating it, which is what we're doing with these artificial intelligences. And you, you actually cautioned in the book, you say, we should be thinking more carefully about the ecosystem in which we are raising AI, particularly the kind of aggressive, domineering and destructive forms which seem to be proliferating. And you wanted to kind of give this AI a, a different upbringing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was already doing something odd in terms of doing the even the self-driving car experience, which is a good kind of analog for it, really, because even the self-driving cars that are being developed now, you know, they're, they're evolved in a particular location. They're mostly like trained on the roads of California um, <laughs> or a few other U.S. states or in the kind of, um, you know, the test tracks in Bavaria and Germany. Um, and so they grow up in a particular place. They have effectively their own kind of cultural expectations. Um, and as an example, like they don't work very well on small mountain roads in Greece. Not many people have them here for economic reasons as well as navigational ones. Um, and so I wanted to see what it would be like to yeah, raise one of these in a, in a very different place, one, a place with a very different kind of cultural, I mean, a very different infrastructure, but also a very different culture and mythology and just an understanding of the world. Um, and so we literally went out driving together. Um, because the interesting thing about these cars that it took me a long time to understand is, you know, because they're learning systems, they're not pre-programmed. You don't just write a bunch of rules for this thing and set it off. Uh, you, you go driving with it and it sits there in the passenger seat and watches you drive, essentially. That's how these things learn. And, the, you know, the ones built by the big car companies, they have hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of hours of driving experience. Mine didn't have quite that many, um, but we went on a trip together. Well, you know, we, we drove up into the mountains and we drove around for a few days and it got to see how I drove, which is not very well. Um, and it got to see like what the mountains were like and what those roads would be like to experience for itself. Well, and what it gave you back in return was this ability to more deeply understand the way that this particular kind of intelligence sees the world, like its, it's worldview, if you will. Um, and... That gets you thinking about the way that all kinds of different creatures perceive their environment with their particular set of uh, biological tools and, uh, you know, genetic baggage. Um, talk to me a little bit about how that started to, and, and your research in general, started to change the way that you think about intelligence as a, a concept. So, yeah, I mean, one of the outcomes of the, the self-driving car project was that I, I got a sense of what its senses were like, right? So I got to a feeling of what, how it saw the world, which is crucial to any kind of relationship. You need to be able to have an understanding of where some kind of shared point of experience would be. However different two minds are, we inhabit the same world. And so what are the moments or the points at which those worlds touch and overlap? 
Um, and with a self-driving car, it was very simple because, because I'd written the software myself. Um, I could delve into it and pick out the aspects of the world that it was seeing, which in this case, very simply, just the kind of edges of the road and corners uh, and the speed it was registering and these kinds of things. But that kind of incredibly simplistic worldview is, is a, a quite a common way to understand all kinds of organisms. There's a classic um, idea called the Umwelt, which comes out of kind of biology and psychology, which is, which is the, the, the point of view of any individual organism. Right. And the classic example of this is like a tick. You know, one oh, of I'm so glad you're going to I think insects. about this every time I'm now walking around in California's grasslands. I think about this example. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So these are these are incredibly simple organisms. And they basically they have they have an, a very small number of like senses. And what they sense is uh, the odor of I think it's butyric acid, which is an odor that's given off by warm blooded animals. Uh, they can sense the temperature um, that corresponds to the temperature of warm blood in, in mostly in mammals. And they can basically feel hair, right? <laughs> those are their three main senses. But those are entirely enough for this thing to sit on a piece of grass until a warm blooded mammal walks past, drop off at the right moment, and then find through the hair the point at which to burrow in and, and, and sip some tasty blood. And so those three components, those three incredibly simple senses, comprise the entire worldview of the tick. But from that worldview, the whole world emerges. And then when you start to understand that the, the umwelt of, of every organism is individual, right? You start to understand that everything, everything that moves, everything, and, and maybe some things that don't, have like this little set of senses out of which they build the world. And sometimes those worldviews overlap and they become a kind of key to imagining ourselves in, in correspondence, in relationship to, to some other being. And so what you have to do is find those little, those little moments of intersection and suddenly a whole world start to blossom. Yeah. You know, maybe the most fur furthest afield for most people in trying to imagine those points of connection are, are plants. People don't think of, you know, it's kind of easy to look at a dog and start to imagine the umwelt, the point of view of the dog, um, mostly about treats, I think. Um, but for plants, it was kind of different. And, and you did something which I've actually myself uh, done, which was to take time-lapse photography of your plants and watch the way that they moved at this with this other conception of time. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's one of the easiest ways to kind of knock yourself into a different kind of awareness of, of all of these other lives that surround us is just to challenge some of the kind of super basic, like often unthought assumptions we have about things. And so obviously the, the main thing we think about plants is that they don't move. That's, that's, been, that's what like Aristotle said of, said of the plant that it is sessile and therefore it doesn't have a soul. That was like its basic thing. Doesn't move, doesn't have a soul, fine. But the magic of, of, of like just putting a little camera next to one of these things and sleeving it there for a few hours and coming back and seeing like this extraordinary blooming, um, uh, waving motions that various plants do, and all different kinds, crucially. You know, as I said, the umwelt is, is individual to the organism. So every plant moves differently and tracks the sun or, or you know, bends towards um, something else or, or tracks movement or whatever it is. Uh, they have this incredible vibrancy of life. Um, there's a biologist that I, I was reading, and he had this lovely line, which was just that plants are just very slow animals, right? <laughs> um, they're different, but when you understand that, or when it becomes clear to you by seeing this incredible movement that they're capable of, something immediately snaps into view. And this is also like, this is important historically because it was actually um, 
Charles Darwin and his, his son who um, pioneered this technique before the use of cameras, where they placed large sheets of glass in front of plants and for days at a time sat there tracing the movement of the plants with a pencil. And they wrote this book called The Power of Movement in Plants that was incredibly influential on Darwin's kind of scientific thinking for the rest of his life, where he too had this realization that more than kind of mechanistic, dumb activity is going on here. Something, something else is occurring. Life is kind of pushing itself outward uh, and, and is interacting with the world in all these ways. I also love in your book, you there's this word, right? Nutate for the actual form of, of locomotion in plants, right? Where they're sort of, well, I'm not going to try and explain it, but that's, there's the actual word for it. It's so beautiful um, the way that you present that. Yeah, it's so lovely. I and mean, it's, it's a word I learned from reading that, that work by Darwin. He, he talks about circummutation. And it, it, if you've ever seen a plant growing, in, in time lapse, but not necessarily, you'll have known it. It's just that little twisting motion they do. And it's the kind of, it's the basic moment, movement of, of every kind of plant as it emerges from a seed. It will just spiral upwards, kind of questing, looking out and around the world. Kind of this, it's like a greeting. And I think it's the most beautiful thing. Totally agree. We are talking about different forms of intelligence, where it can be found, you know, artificial, plant, animal, with James Bridle, author of Ways of Being, Animals, Plants, Machines, The Search for a Planetary Intelligence, which is out in a week. You can pre-order it now. Listening to some throat singing here at the moment in the background, in case you were curious. And we'd love to hear from you. What forms of non-human intelligence have surprised you? You can give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, it's KQD Forum, or you can email your surprising encounters with non-human intelligence at forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more after the break. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We are talking with James Bridle, author of a new book, Ways of Being Animals, Plants, Machines, The Search for a Planetary Intelligence, which is out on June 21st. One of the most fascinating parts of this book isn't just that you have identified a bunch of different stories about intelligence that exists or surprising intelligence that exists out in in the natural world or within the machines that we've created. It's also that people themselves through time, back through time, have had these surprising relationships, finding intelligence in 
animals, uh, in in plants and and in landscapes. And you tell some pretty amazing stories about that in in indigenous cultures. The way that the interaction between people who lived within these landscapes and those landscapes was was very different from the one that you know people living, for example, in San Francisco, California, might have with the landscape that's around them. Yeah, I mean, it's really, really important to understand that so many of our assumptions and the, the ways that we experience relationships with the modern human world are, are, are minority ones, both historically and, and geographically. Uh, and in fact, that most of what I'm talking about in the book is would really not be that surprising to anyone who lives outside the kind of Western Enlightenment history, this history that has always reduced animals, plants, and other beings to kind of dumb machines, uh, which is a legacy that's only a, a few hundred years long, really, but has become kind of pervasive. Um, and in the book, I, start, I, I try to stick close to, to mostly to the European experience, to speak to my own experience and the experience of people like me, um, because I say this would be kind of obvious to a lot of other people. Um, but some stories I think are really, really important, particularly in our present moment where we're going about things really wrong. And, and let me give you an example of that, which is that there's a real push at the moment to analyze um, uh, like non-human communication um, mm. uh, and the, the supposed languages of other beings and then mediate our communication with them through computers, i.e. to build like machines that can talk to animals on our behalf. And it's really important to understand that there's many, many examples, even in the present day and throughout history, of people who spoke with animals that we already have a shared language because of our experience of living alongside each other. And my favorite example of that from the book is probably the Yao people of, uh, who live in what's now present-day Mozambique. And they have a long history of talking to and working with non-human animals. In their case, these little birds called honey guides. Um, the Yao live in, in the savannah, uh, where there's lots of beehives high up in the trees, but they, they're not always so easy to find. Um, also in that, in that those kind of light forests live these little birds, the honey guides, who are really good at finding bees' nests mm -hmm. and love eating, uh, eating the honey, but they can't crack through the honeycomb. Mm -hmm. So what they do is they fly uh, into the Yao's camp and they call a special call that they only use to speak with people. Hmm. And they call out one of these honey hunters who then will follow them through the forest and they will fly making this call to a bee's nest and show them where it is. Uh, and then the, the hunter will smoke out the hive and break it open, and they will leave some honey for the, for the honey guides. Um, but the Yao also have words, or a word, that they use to communicate with the honey guides. And they will go out into the savannah and make this particular noise. And again, this isn't just a noise, it's a word. Because you can test this, you can go out and make other noises, and they don't work, <laughs> right? Um, this is a specific word that has evolved as a communication between between birds and people. And there's many, many examples of this, of where um, like long-standing forms of communication exist, but they've been essentially forgotten or, um, or not recognized as, as a, a, a form of mutuality. And this is really key. This is my kind of one of the big theses of the book, I guess, is that whatever we're talking about, consciousness, sentience, intelligence, communication, these are not things that happen at the individual level. And particularly, they're not things that just happen inside our own heads or inside a machine. They're things that happen in relationships. They're things that emerge when we're in contact with other beings. And so that can really arise almost anywhere when you kind of attune yourself to it and pay attention. Yeah. You also, because this is uh, something that kind of local, uh, wanted to, to mention too that 
There have been other people, even in the Western tradition, who've tried to imagine other ways of relating to animals that wouldn't just sort of be like creating a computer that could understand some basic whale sounds and try and like repeat them back through a speaker. Uh, for example, the dolphin embassy, which was proposed by Ant Farm. Can you talk a little bit about that and why you see that as a sort of counterexample to the some of these more mechanistic ways of trying to communicate with animals? Yeah, so I mean, as 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 an artist as well as a writer and, and various other things, I, I'm very interested in in the history of kind of artistic endeavor in this area and the way in which artists have often opened up new perspectives on the kind of relationships that I'm talking about. And one of my really some of my favorite artists of, of, of all is the the Bay Area Collective uh, Ant Farm, who in the sort of sixties and early seventies pioneered a bunch of really extraordinary. Some of them quite far out, but now, of course, uh, very obviously prescient uh, kind of forms. They did this incredible work with um, inflatables, building kind of inflatable mm -hmm. structures in the 1960s. They, they instantiated various kind of happenings and, and kind of public art forms. And one of their kind of great unrealized projects, sadly, was this thing they called the Dolphin Embassy, um, which was a plan for a kind of huge floating structure um, that would um, they would take out into the sea and live on in order to um, build relationships with cetaceans, with, with dolphins. And this was in, you know, the, the point of this is it's in really stark contrast to the way in which we mostly attempt to uh, talk to, talk with or understand other animals, which usually happens under, you know, human conditions, animals in cages inside zoos and laboratories, these really, um, uh, you know, false um, situations. Whereas Anfarm realized uh, as many, many scientific researchers have realized kind of in the decades since, that if you want to understand another creature, um, you have to be immersed in, in, in their world, or you have to be immersed in it together. In the case of the dolphin farm, quite literally, like half submerged into the sea, in order that you are actually able to create a shared world together, rather than treat, you know, other creatures as kind of subjects of experiments. Yeah. You know, I want to talk a little bit about some of the ideas that emerge from this way of thinking in the, in the realm of computing. First, um, you know, one of our listeners, Greg, um, wants a response to this, I think, which is he says, uh, really got a problem with you and your guests insisting on seriously anthropomorphizing code. You could do the same with an iPhone, whatever. Even a tick is infinitely more sophisticated system than 10,000 lines of code. Sure, Darwin realized plants are not simply mechanisms, but you can't imbue a bunch of code with sentience and, and feelings. How do you how do you respond to uh, to that? What I'm sure is kind of a, a criticism that can come of this kind of work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, anthropomorphization this 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 desire we kind of naturally have to um, to see human qualities in other beings is 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 a kind of I, I consider it to be almost a kind of necessary evil. Like it's it's kind of unavoidable because we are anthropos, right? <laughs> we have no other way of perceiving the world than from our own embodied being. So some degree of anthropocentrism is always, um, always, always going to be present. Um, but if you acknowledge that, if you recognize that that is our viewpoint, but you also acknowledge at the same time that other beings are incredibly different, um, uh, becomes an opening. Because as I said earlier, you start to look for this kind of shared space of understanding. And in terms of when I'm talking about lines of code or the tick or a plant, I'm not, I'm not suggesting 
that the form of intelligence that they have is human intelligence. In fact, I'm suggesting quite the opposite. I'm suggesting that all of this intelligence is more than human. I.e., it's, it's something that exists outside the human, that we participate in, in one particular kind of way, right? That, that humans have a particular flavor of intelligence. Um, and so do other things. Whether these particular lines of code do or not, we're still figuring that out. But almost every other living creature, I would say all other living creatures in, in, on the planet do have some form of intelligence that is unique to their way of being, to the way they are embodied, to their umwelt, to the qualities that they possess. Yeah. And so historically, you know, in the book, I really tried several times to work out, you know, how do you define intelligence? That's the sort of thing a person writing a book about intelligence has to do. You have to say <laughs> at some point, this is intelligence. But if you look at the history, what you find is, is all of these different definitions and, and particularly things that tend to be kind of assemblages of various different qualities, you know, a kind of checklist of, of various things that say, okay, if you, if you get enough ticks on this list, you're intelligent. But what's, what's always, always comes up is that that is always an anthropomorphic list, right? It's that the only real definition of intelligence that we've used forever is basically what humans do. And the moment you get rid of that and start to take the abilities of other beings uh, on their own merits, uh, you start to see intelligence as something um, far broader, far more interesting, and, and crucially something that arises out of our interactions rather than just kind of within our heads. And so, um, as I said, I, I think anthropomorphism is important to bear in mind but it's really crucial to understand that it's not necessarily what we have to do all the time if we're open to the idea that other creatures might be fundamentally different to us and yet in some way knowable. This kind of brings us to slime molds, I would say. <laughs> um, I do. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about, I mean, even just what a slime mold is and then how that relates back to your ideas around computing and this cracking open of the idea of intelligence. Yeah, absolutely. So slime molds are these fascinating little critters that no one's really sure what they are. You know, in the book, I talk about many examples of the way our, our notions of species and, and kingdom and clade, these kind of taxonomic boundaries that we've laid down, just, just are all falling apart. And slime molds are a really good example of this because they're not really fungi, they're not really algae, they're kind of, they're, they're unicellular like amoebae most of the time, but sometimes they glom together into these kind of big sacks of cytoplasm and behave as a, as a, a, a community and to reach some kind of common goal. So they, they, belong, to, they belong to themselves, really. They're, they're, they're strangely unique, um, as is almost everything once you delve down into it enough. Um, but we've discovered under like exactly the kind of experimental conditions that I, I find to be very um, you know, dodgy for actually finding out what's going on, uh, these extraordinary abilities. So uh, a, a few years ago, some researchers in Tokyo, they did this experiment where in kind of a big Petri dish, they laid down little bits of slime mold food, like oat flakes that they seem to like, uh, in the pattern of, of, of major urban centers around Tokyo. Um, and they also put in some, some little lights which uh, slime molds dislike in the, in the place of kind of rivers and mountains as obstacles for the slime molds growth. And the thing is slime molds are really good at finding the most efficient way to find food. And within 24 hours of being placed in this dish, uh, the slime molds had uh, recreated uh, incredibly similar structure to the Tokyo Metro rail network, uh, a kind of vast piece of, of infrastructure that's taken some of the best engineers in the world decades to build. 
um, you know, they, they replicated this. So they're capable of doing like this really interesting root finding. Um, and then some further experiments showed something kind of even more crazy, um, which is that there's this thing in maths and computer science called the traveling salesman problem, which is a, a mathematical problem to say, what's the most efficient route between say five or six cities? If you have to visit each one once, right? You can imagine how this is like a really big deal for things like FedEx or, or UPS or so, you know, they need to figure out this problem. Um, but it turns out to be almost impossible for computers to solve because it gets really, really hard. Every time you add another city, it gets exponentially more hard, which means the time to solve it rapidly becomes infinite, right? Now, humans are terrible at this problem, and even our best supercomputers are really terrible at it. Slime molds, it turns out, are really good. They can solve this problem in linear time, which means it doesn't get uh, you know, massively harder at every step. They just keep solving it in the same time every time you add a city. And we don't know how they do this, but it is an ability that is um, you know, not, not accessible to us as humans or even to the most advanced calculating machines we've built. And to them, it's probably not even that hard, right? It's just something they just do. Um, and we've only, we're only capable of seeing it because we ask these kind of questions, questions that are relevant to being a human or being a computer. So we can't even imagine the kind of thinking that they are actually capable of that don't even fit within our kinds of worldview. But it's one of these little hints, you know, a kind of little truffle scent that something really extraordinary is going on at, this, at the level of a single-celled creature that is capable of kind of computational abilities uh, that are completely beyond, beyond our own. We're talking about different forms of intelligence, how they could work in tandem with human intelligence to sort of better understand, maybe even try to save our planet. We're talking with James Bridle, the author of Ways of Being, Animals, Plants, Machines, The Search for Planetary Intelligence. That's out June 21st here in the U.S. It's out in the U.K., Bridal's a writer, artist, technologist, also the author of New Dark Age. Wanted to say we've been having some phone trouble, but they're back. So what forms of non-human intelligence have surprised you? You can give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram are KQED Forum. Or you can email forum at kqed.org. Phones are up. So if you've been trying to call, haven't been able to get through, now you can. So this slime mold intelligence and this, this, this truffle scent, I love that idea, about like what other organisms are, are capable of. How did that change the way that you started to think about the kinds of computers that historically developed? So I've always been really trying to puzzle out for some time why it is that this thing that we're all like, culturally, technologically, financially obsessed with artificial intelligence seems to be focused on, partic on, on particular areas that come out in kind of particular ways. Uh, the, the particular example is I, I, I've been fascinated for a long time by the fact that our, our main way of developing these artificial intelligences is, is in competition, right? So like training machine learning to beat us at games we enjoy. <laughs> or, or take away uh, certain pleasures from us by, by automating certain things that are part of our lives, right? There's, there's something, there seems to be something kind of wrong <laughs> going on here. Um, and that feeling really culminated for me uh, when I was working with um, activists in Northern Greece who are trying to stop oil and gas exploration. Um, 
you know, and, and I was visiting these incredibly beautiful natural areas, uh, just the, the region of Epirus in northern Greece. It's really unspoiled, beautiful mountainous area where this oil and gas exploration is going on. And realizing that the the you know one of the main tools of these um, these oil and gas companies was um, was artificial intelligence, machine learning systems built by Microsoft, by Google, by Amazon to make the discovery and extraction of crude oil and other other things from under the ground more efficient. Mm-hmm. Right now, that's not intelligent. That's about the dumbest thing we could be doing. So there's something fundamentally wrong with you know, not just the ways in which we're applying technology in the present, but our very idea of what this kind of intelligence might consist of. Um, but at the same time, uh, there's something fascinating about, about the fascination we have for these forms of artificial intelligence, because we're so bad at seeing intelligence around us, and yet we're so good at seeing it within this technology, right? And th- this moment, I, I realized that maybe like, you know, whatever artificial intelligence is or might be, and that's still highly contested, and I'm, I'm very unsure about it all. Maybe its cultural role is to make us realize that human intelligence is not the only game in town, that other ways of thinking are possible. And as soon as there's more than one kind of intelligence, then there's infinite kinds of intelligence. And so artificial intelligence is almost this kind of little gateway to seeing all these other things that exist in the world. We're and talking- so if this intelligence is... Oh, Go ahead, go, go ahead. ahead. We got like 30 seconds. Oh, uh, I would like to continue after. But oh, yeah. saying that this, this is like, a, um, yeah, a moment in which we can see other forms of intelligence becoming possible and therefore perhaps other ways of building technology as well. That's awesome. We're talking about different forms of intelligence, artificial, plant, uh, machine. We're talking with James Bridle, author of Ways of Being, Animals, Plants, Machines, The Search for a Planetary Intelligence... Enjoy some John Cage here. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more after the break. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with James Bridle, an artist, technologist, writer. He's got a new book coming out June 21st here in the U.S. called Ways of Being, Animals, Plants, Machines, The Search for Planetary Intelligence. Extremely fascinating and wild book. The uh, music we've been hearing going into the breaks are all things that have sort of been mentioned in uh, James Bridle's book, including uh, what we heard uh, on the out there, which was a composition from John Cage. 
So uh, as we were uh, coming up, we were talking about how the cultural role that artificial intelligence plays might be just to sort of point to this infinity of intelligences out there. And you, in the book, work on these kind of hybrid computational devices. And I think you can probably explain best by talking about the crab computer. Yeah, the crab computer is, is something really stunning. So um, one of the things that um, you can do with computation is you can, you can think about different ways in which it can be run. So even if you're thinking about the simplest level of, of computation, which is just the binary ones and zeros, uh, doing you know, the most basic kind of little binary sums, one in, zero out, whatever it is, these things are called logic gates. They're programmed uh, at the very basic level of every single computer to do, to do the most simple arithmetic that then can be built up into the whole world of computation. But the thing about that, that binary arithmetic is you, could, you can do it with anything. You don't have to do it just with ones and zeros. So there's a whole theoretical bit of computation, which is called billiard ball computing, where these mathematicians imagined that instead of using you know, two electrons coming into a transistor, you could have two billiard balls colliding. And the shape of the billiard table would define what the outcome was. You could place a couple of pockets at the end so that if only one billiard ball came in, one ball would go into a pocket. But if two billiard balls came in, they would bounce off each other and no billiard balls would go in. And that's a mathematical operation you could measure. And that's, that's analogous to what's happening inside your computer all the time. And then some scientists in Japan took this a stage further where they observed that the behavior of a particular type of Japanese soldier crab was kind of analogous to billiard balls because one of the notable features of these crabs is they form huge colonies and on the move they swarm in huge numbers, sometimes thousands of these crabs moving at once, but they move in very predictable ways. In fact, they move a little like billiard balls in that they move in straight lines uh, and then they kind of bounce off each other and go off in other directions if they collide. So these guys actually constructed a kind of little runway maze for these crabs where they put you know, a group of crabs into, into various places in the maze and then they scared them with shadows, uh, which is not necessarily the nicest thing to do, but that's how you get crabs to move because they think it's predatory birds. And so they shadowed them and these crabs started moving and they could predict you know, which way into which tunnels they would go uh, in exactly the same way as the billiard balls. And they constructed several of these gates that allowed them to do binary arithmetic with thousands of crabs. And it's these kind of very odd experiments that aren't so much about the intelligence of other beings, but show the way in which computation can be done in quite radically different ways to the ways that we do it in present. And in the book, I expand that quite a lot from these kind of laboratory experiments into, um, into much larger scale operations in the world that seem to point to kinds of computation that are not as abstracted from the world as the types of computation that we use today that frame our thinking about the world in such narrow ways. Why is it important for you to do computation that's not abstracted from the world in that way? In particular, I associate the, the way in which we do computing today, this kind of binary computation within quite, you know, enclosed machines as part of the problem we have for thinking about the world. Uh, we've, we've been developing computation you know, for, for almost 100 years ago, uh, 100 years now or, or longer. You know, it really starts to kick off in the 1950s and 60s. And we've built these incredibly powerful tools for thinking about and interacting with the world into which we put all of our thinking. But it's only one way of thinking, and it's very narrow. And one of the functions of kind of this kind of computation is that it makes us think like computers as well. 
because we only think about what is computable in the machines that we have. And one of those effects that is we tend to, we think in this kind of binary way. We think in the, we think in ones and zeros and everything that is not codable into a machine becomes kind of unthinkable. Things that can't be counted and represented in this way simply are not represented within computer systems. The values, the value of an ecosystem, the value of life itself simply doesn't fit inside a computer representation. And so if we only think in the, in the ways that these binary machines allow us to think, then a huge part of the world is, is missed out on, is erased, is forgotten. And, and that's a huge part of our kind of contemporary malaise. And so one of the things that I look at in the book is, is, is forms of computation that, that don't do this. Um, it's very striking that if you look back to really one of the very dawns of computation, which is Alan Turing's work on what he called the universal machine, uh, which is a kind of theoretical computer, which is almost all of the computers that we have today. 99.9999% of all computers we use today are Turing machines. They're, they're what he called automatic machines. They just do what we tell them to do. They run automatically. They, they start and hopefully finish these little computations. And that's the world in which our minds now inhabit. But in Turing's very first paper written in the 1940s, the first paper in which he described the the universal machine or the automatic machine. He also said, this is not the only kind of computer that is possible. He, said, he, he, he mentions just in a footnote, this thing that he called the Oracle machine. And then he says, the only thing that's true about the Oracle machine is that it cannot be a machine. And then he leaves the subject alone and he never talks about it again. <laughs> he was leaving it for you, James. Right, that was it. That was well, it. He was leaving yeah, it I think he was, he was leaving it for all of us to, to, to acknowledge that the, the way of thinking we have about the world that's become so dominant is not the only way of thinking. And in fact, in the years since, we've, we've occasionally returned to that idea and created things that, that don't run in that way. Uh, in the book, I, one example I talk about, I talk about non-binary computing, computing that doesn't run along digital ones and zeros, but runs at a kind of, uh, runs in analog, that runs what I consider to be more in tune with the world. And one of my favorite examples of this uh, is actually in, in San Francisco. It's the Bay Area model, which many of your listeners might be familiar in with. Sausalito there. Which is yeah. the, 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 the simulator that was built by the U.S. Corps of Engineers for modeling hydrological flows within the, within the Bay. Um, and that is an analog computer, right? Because it uses actual water to perform its computation, like many other examples that I refer to in the book. And that's more accurate and more true to the world than a purely digital simulation, because it's using, it's running on the world itself, right? And, and, and examples like this are, are, are kind of openings, again, as, as I keep mentioning, these kind of points of reconnection back to the world that break with this hard binary um, and very kind of anthropocentric uh, way of seeing the world uh, that admit the, um, the agency and possibility and, and even intelligence of other beings to kind of to compute with us and to think with us about how much, how we might work together. Right. You're not simulating this extremely complex fluid dynamics. You are using fluid, <laughs> right? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's quite different. Um, Roberto writes, um, as a native of this continent, I can tell you that indigenous peoples around the world understand that humans aren't the only ones with intelligence. We understand that plants, the elements, indeed all living matter and even the cosmos are alive and have intentions. That is an element of the cultural 
ideation here. And Roberto, I want to say there are some fascinating examples in James Bridle's book of exactly what you're talking about there. Uh, Ricky writes, it is incredible and very humanly egotistical to think we're the only intelligent beings in this world. We just don't understand intelligence outside of our own. Amanda tweets, this conversation is definitely on the more optimistic side, but it's a nice counterbalance to our very limited computer-based AI and the whole Google engineer thing from a few days ago. Our large AI systems are just that, incredibly complex computer programs that are in part designed and implemented by other computer programs. We do not have a so-called general AI yet, and no, and no one can easily do what something like slime mold does. You know, I did want to ask you this, you know, as we go into this uh, pledge break, you want to, in this book, really disentangle the tools of artificial intelligence and and of computing from its development within modern capitalism. And I do, I do want to ask you: Can you actually have one without the other? Like, how do we get semiconductor fabs without the whole ecology of money and mining and pollution and all that? Can you actually have it in in both ways? I don't think you can have it both ways, but we can certainly have it differently. Uh, we certainly can't have the kind of mass scale industrial production uh, that's based on extraction um, uh, that we have at present. Uh, we, we know we've overshot uh, and we know we're going to have to pull back from that, um, either out of choice or, or we'll be forced to in the, in the coming decade. Um, so, you know, my, my real interest is, is, is trying to find what we can save from what we know uh, that we've learned from you know, our mistakes in the past and take them forward and find alternatives for preserving the kinds of thinking about the world and the kind of relationships that are important while leaving behind the, the, the most damaging aspects. Um, for example, you know, the, one of the most beautiful experiences I had working on the book was, was working with um, researchers in, again, up in northern Greece, in Ipidus, in fact, very close to where the, the oil extraction is being planned who are working with um, a particular type of plants called hyperaccumulators. Um, these plants were first researched mostly by mining companies in the 1990s, who discovered this class of plants that, that could grow in soils which are actually toxic to most life because they're full of metal and, uh, and other um, things that, that damage most plants. And the mining companies were interested in these because they realized they could plant them on polluted ground. And these plants basically suck these various substances out of the ground and store them in their leaves and, and stalks and then um, uh, and, and essentially remediate the soil, they clean it. And then after that, you can grow other things on it and so on and so forth. Um, but there's a new kind of realization that's happened around these plants is that you can also grow them on naturally occurring metal soils. Uh, Ipirus is full of naturally occurring nickel soils. Mm. So there's a lot of nickel just naturally in the ground. Uh, and there's certain plants that have evolved there to grow this, uh, to, to harvest this, essentially. And by growing these plants deliberately, you can actually um, harvest them, leaving the roots in the ground so they'll grow again the next year and, 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 and get these, these metals out of them. Now, there's a couple of things about this. The first of them is that that's never going to uh, replace the kind of industrial levels of extraction we have at present. Um, well, th there's simply no way. And it would be incredibly damaging to even attempt. But there are analogs for, for a lot of the things that we do, whether it's direct ones like that, this kind of engineering, um, or whether it's um, uh, you know, more kinds of uh, ways of thinking like the slime molds. Mm -hmm. uh, everything that we try and do, there are, it turns out, uh, pre-existing ways in the natural world of, of accommodating various of these things. 
And the second thing that the, the hypoaccumulators always remind well, me. Hang on, hang on to that for that, one second, yeah. James. Uh, we're talking with James Bridal. He's the author of Ways of Being, Animals, Plants, Machines, The Search for Planetary Intelligence. This is a fundraising period for KQED Public Radio. For more information about how to support KQED, go to kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. And you can finish your point. Let's see. I want to hear the second point on hyperaccumulators. Yeah. Um, and then the other, the other thing that you realize about these plants is, is that they essentially represent in body a certain kind of knowledge about the world. So in, in the place that I'm working with, they use three types of, of plants. There's one that grows all across Southern Europe. There's one that only grows kind of in Northern Greece and Albania. And there's one that only really grows on this one mountain, Mount hmm. Timphy. Um, and that plant has been evolving in this particular place, these particular abilities for thousands, millions of years. And it's learned something about this place. And all this time we've been out here developing these incredibly violent ways of extracting the things that we need from the earth. While the plant has found of its own accord, the, the place in which uh, this material is available, and it has evolved to, to live with it in balance. Uh, and I, I, for me, that's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a form of knowledge and it's a form of intelligence because it's, it's, it's living in a difficult, complex environment that is in many ways dangerous to life, um, but it is succeeding in doing so. And that's really what almost all you know, non-human beings uh, do in order to survive. They find the ways in which to balance the dangers um, of the environment they live in the possibility of change uh, with, a, with, an, with an ecological balance, um, which is, to me, really the highest form of intelligence. A couple of uh, listeners want to get to things. One listener writes in to say, I'm always amazed when I watch videos of swarming honeybees, seeing them march into a new hive, fanning their pheromones out to signal to the rest of the bees, or doing their little dance to tell another worker where good flowers are is always really cool. Your description of that is one of the best things uh, that I've read on these bees. And let's get to uh, Sophia in San Mateo. All right. Hey. Hi. Hey. I'm... Can you hear me? Yeah, sure can. Go ahead. Okay, I'm Sophia. I'm a rising junior at the Nueva School. And this year, this past school year, we did a pro project on slime mold. We actually modeled um, the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, or specifically the peninsula, the same way the Tokyo experiment was done. No way! Um, oh, that's great. Yeah, we had um, quite a few issues with other with contamination, <laughs> but it was it was a fun thought experiment. And um, I wanted to note that in doing research, um, we've found a paper from about a year ago that um, put out a theory as to how the slime mold finds the shortest possible path. Um, and um, it, what it does is it ha releases a chemical signal when it finds food, and that opens the tubes to be bigger, um, those tubes that reach the food. And the, then it narrows down and kills all of the thinner, thinnest tubes <laughs> so that it's left with the most efficient ones. Um, so, so it's cool. kind of brute force. It, you can see this. We took some uh, time-lapse videos and in other videos, uh, you can see that it spreads out everywhere and then narrows down. Um, it kind of creates a cloud and then you see uh, tubes and thicker paths emerge from that. Wow. Yep. Sophia, thank you so much for sharing that with us. That's actually um, just a, a wonderful project and uh, a great bit of info. Thank you so much. Um, James, have you uh, had you seen that paper? I hadn't seen that paper. That sounds fascinating. I must uh, must revise and update my knowledge. Uh, but yeah. I'm just so pleased to hear like this is this is being done. Sophia, thank you so much for that. Um, 
because you know one of the really one of the really important things uh, is that these 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 experiments these experiences are not just confined to laboratories uh, and hopefully not just to schools and, and chem labs or bio labs or this kind of stuff but that, that as many people as possible have the opportunity to to experience or experiment with or talk to and, and work with all of these things as possible because you know alongside all the other you know larger scale threats that we face you know the one of the most important things is just kind of diversifying um, and decentralizing the kinds of knowledge we have about the world. And the more people that have whatever these experiences are of, of interacting with, with these things, um, the, the more we will discover quite simply, because you know, it, it goes all the way back to the umwelt. Uh, every organism has its own viewpoint and experience of the world. And, and that goes for all of us as well. And so if, if we're in a world where only certain kinds of accredited scientists or people who work at large corporations get to have these experiences of, of, of um, communing with other organisms, then only certain kinds of knowledge are produced. But the wider we spread this kind of knowledge and understanding, the more people have the chance to do this, like the more interesting things result and the more understanding that we have. James Bridal, you are honestly a real treasure in this world. I really appreciate this work. There's nobody I know who's doing this kind of thinking, who's trying to put technology that we have on these new foundations. And I just, I honestly really can't, can't thank you enough for this book. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, I'm really glad people are reading it, enjoying it, and I hope, I hope more do. <laughs> We've been talking about different forms of intelligence, how they could work in tandem with human intelligence to better understand even try to save the planet. We've been joined by James Bridal, the author of Ways of Being, Animals, Plants, Machines, The Search for a Planetary Intelligence. That's out June 21st. Bridal's previous books include The New Dark Age and shout out to book2.org, one of the great blogs. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. A young correctional officer. He said it was the most dangerous prison in California. Forced to make a choice. Fulfill his oath 
or back his fellow officers. Recognize the badge of my office. I'm Suki Lewis. From KQED Podcasts comes On Our Watch Season 2, New Folsom. A story about who gets hurt when the system that promises to keep us safe is bent on protecting itself. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.